Welcome to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Your hosts are freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield, plus videographer and host of the YouTube channel Craving Cars, Corey Pratt, and 35-year radio veteran, book publisher, and vehicular village idiot, Mark Catfish Groves. Let's rev up the conversation time for driven radio show welcome back to driven radio god it feels like forever since we've been in studio it is kind of odd but yeah, yeah it's nice to be back well yes, it is. you know sometimes life gets in the way and you don't always get to do what you want to do and some of us had to travel and <laughs> other of us went places to get things and didn't get things and oh yes yeah we're gonna yeah. get into that in just a minute <laughs> so welcome to driven radio this is your weeky weeky weekly Weeky. Weeky, weeky. Weeky, weeky. Your weekly automotive back in the uh, I am Brett Hatfield here with our engineer and co-host Catfish Groves. Yo. And the evil genius of Craving Cars on YouTube, Mr. Corey Pratt. Yeah, that's me. And we are coming to you from the Driven Radio Studios, which are a whole lot chillier than they were last time we were here. It's stupid. It's just, stupid just cold. Dead. Snow before Halloween. This is crap, yeah. man. It's the kind of make you mad cold. Yeah, you're going to see little kids trick or treating in snowsuits. This is yeah. BS. Yesterday I was in, you know, cutoffs. Today I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it is. Cursed the, weather patterns. It's the freaking yes. Midwest. Uh, we are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Overland Park, Kansas. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear, tell us. Please tell us. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. If you like what you are hearing, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Music and be sure to tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear, someone you'd like to hear us interview, please let us know. You can send us an email at Brett at readthedriven.com. So, guys, what have you been doing in cars this week, Mr. Corey? Uh, I changed the oil in my Porsche. Oh. You know, uh, in two weeks, good. driving 5,000 miles, it was already time to change the oil. <laughs> Those things are a booger to change the oil in. Actually, one of the easiest cars I've ever done. Really? What? I'm not even kidding. Even, once you have the right tools. Okay, once you have the right tools. But I know that those are the way they were designed was so that customers would stay the hell out of the engine bay. And I think, see, this is the first, remember, this is the first gen uh, Cayman. I mean, not the first gen of the style. Technically, it's the during the second gen of the Boxster, you know, kind of yeah. piggybacks off the Boxster style. But but when they made this one, I don't. I think they forgot to do that. So <laughs> when you look up underneath, obviously, where you got to do the drain plug, and, and the old canister is literally right next to it. As long as you got that little tool that puts over it, and it's a canister because you just refill the, uh, the filter on oh, the yeah, inside. Yeah. But it's like right there, right there. Done. Now, my understanding of the next generation of Caymans, they put it up into the bay more, oh, and it's much harder to get to. to get so I feel like everything so far is decent, just like I had to replace the thing called an air oil separator, uh-huh. a common thing. These go wrong on yeah, all yeah. Caymans, Boxers, 911s. Uh, apparently, mine's the easiest one for it to change, and I was able to do it. And the only thing I really had to do is go buy a weird like uh, hose clamp thing where I can get it to a tight spot other than that. Freaking easiest thing. Starting to learn your way around your car pretty well? Uh, so far. Nice. Cool. I got to see the in- I mean, uh, So for the most part, I got to actually see the engine from the top for the first time. Really? Because you ain't got to take the engine cover off to get to the little thing. I, the, the, the AOS that I replaced. It's cool. on the top. But it's right there on the top. You take it off. Boom. It's right there. You're like, 
<laughs> That's cool that you were able to do it. Yeah. And not have to go ask for help somewhere. What, what the weird part was is you sit in the back of the car. You're in the car sitting in it <laughs> while you're reaching over and doing something. So I like, had to like get some slippers, you know, and pull in the garage and just kind of yeah, take my shoes off, pull. sitting all nice and comfortable in the back. And your sock feet. Yeah. And if you're working on it yourself, did you suddenly learn to uh, cuss in German? You know what? This, this was uh, one of the one of the <laughs> one of the first ones that I did not cuss and get angry at one moment <gasps> taking this part. That's how simple it was. I'll be doggone. And it, it kind of went in. There was a couple things a little bit difficult. To control a lot But I said, you know what? <laughs> Let me just dig at it for another minute, and yeah, I got it. All right. Well, any of my other cars, I would have for oh, yeah. for all of the. Uh, all of the swearing you did not do mm-hmm. working on your German car, I promise you I have made up for it when working on <laughs> my German car. So. Mr. Mark, you were going to head yourself to uh, Wisconsin, oh, wasn't it? Gonna. Did. And? I, it was a lovely drive. Uh, let me tell you, the the trees and stuff, uh, Last uh, what, it'll be a week once this comes out. Uh, in the previous weekend, we're beautiful up in I because I went north from Kansas City, entered a little bit of Missouri, went up for a ways, went up to Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa, and then Idiots took a right and then went a hell of a long way all all the way to almost Milwaukee, and um, with a good friend. Oh yeah, luckily this is what made the trip awesome because uh, my best friend from college, uh, Phil, came in. And Friday night, and I told, I, I kind of jokingly, but not jokingly said, hey, man, do you want to go on a road trip with me? It's going to be a baton death march of a drive, and we're going to go super fast and try and pick up a car. And he's like, no. <laughs> I wouldn't expect that part. <laughs> but then he, uh, no. he thought about it Hell more and that, more, and Jack. he's like, you know what? We, we hadn't had a chance to just, you know, hang out just he and I in forever. So, of course, you know, this is how we do it in this long, god-awful drive. And, but uh, beautiful weather, really nice people the whole way. By the way, Dubuque, Iowa is beautiful. It's, it's right, right on the Mississippi. Saw and the I didn't know the Mississippi had lost weight that far north. It's a slim, trim Mississippi before it becomes a fat Mississippi down below. Maybe so we ought to move north. All kinds of things I learned. But I also learned that people will lie no matter where you are, mm-hmm. even if they're not a preacher in Arkansas. And uh, yeah, the uh, <laughs> this guy it, lied so hard he couldn't get a job as a preacher in Arkansas. You have no idea how disappointing that was because I had the trailer attached to my truck. I had, I was ready to go pull mm-hmm. up, and you know the first thing I see is the paint. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's not a shiny. Expected that, mm-hmm. not right, a problem. Right. This, that, and the other. So to to just pull it all together, uh, basically there was supposed to be like one small spot of rust through in the trunk. Uh-huh. And that front right fender that had the uh, body filler, yeah, the body, uh, body oh, filler yeah. cracked on it. Uh, there was supposed to be no other body, body filler and no rust, and anything would have been just surface rust. Mm-hmm. So basically no rust. Yeah. And uh, I get into it, and let's just look at the trunk. Oh, I kind of look behind the uh, spare tire, uh, which is still there. I, I, you know, all this original stuff was still with us. And I'm looking at the ground, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not supposed to be there, and it's like this really crappy, you know... It's a panoramic ...silly, putty-worthy weld. Some kid went in with Play-Doh made out of metal and put in a weld there, and of course, it rusted and broke through, and I'm sitting there pushing chunks off the edge of it going, okay, this is not good. I can just about slip my entire hand now through it, and I'm like, oh, I bet it. So I started lifting up the... Trunk had a mail slot. (laughs) I started lifting up the uh, uh, little plastic pad, the liner that was back there, and yeah, there was that little hole that was where a... A uh, strap used to be for the tank. He dropped the tank and cleaned it. 
and they had to put uh, you know the bolts in other places. So there's that little hole, and I'm looking along, and I'm like, that's kind of a dark orange patch. Let me press my thumb on the clink, and then my thumb goes through. I'm like, Jesus H. And I, so the the car was made out of Play-Doh. It was made out of Play-Doh. I went, you know, and I checked out the uh, the front end, la la la, and and then started feeling around. Now my magnet, I took my super strong magnet. It was still able to stick to the fender wells. Okay, but. You felt the backside, and there was enough putty back there to redo your house and make it watertight. And the front, blah, blah, blah. And and to add insult to injury, this (laughs) son of a bitch, um, when he went to close the hood for us to take a test drive before I found out that the front end was way worse than he even tried. It tries to tell me who used to drive on poly tires when I had a 55 Plymouth that, you know, those polys are just sticking. That's why it's doing this. And you remember that, uh, you remember that Merc? Oh, uh, never going to forget it. With the jerky brakes. Yeah. Imagine it doing that without putting the brakes on. It's just like you're, <laughs> you're fighting wow. for your life. Uh-huh. Uh, but the um, he go, he closes the hood. And as we start to get in, I'm like, hey, the hood isn't closed yet. And I walk around to the front. I'm like, uh-oh, because the front of the hood is actually twisted. The Twist. back of the hood is down. But the front end, he has torqued the hood. What, they, what he did was push down on one side, slammed that down, Torque the hood so it mashed the hood into the fender and actually put a crease in the front of the hood right there, right then. I'm done. And uh, we we parked it back and I just told him, no, he was that, you know, I didn't. Well, he was counting on the idea that you'd come so far that you were going to take it no matter what. Yeah. He doesn't know you. No, he he doesn't know my, especially when I feel like I've been lied to. Uh, my back gets real strong. Yep. And I'm like, you know what? I'll eat the $500. F you. You will never see me again. Which, like, he would anyway. <laughs> so it's not really a very strong statement. Well, the, the, ups, the upside was is the people at U-Haul were really nice to you about the trailer. Oh, there was such a... You know what? Going on the trip with my bud made it worth it. We spent... 10 minutes, and we're both, we both love music, but we spent like 10 minutes listening to music and the other eight, as you can tell by the way I'm talking right now, the other 18 hours just yakking. Yeah. And it was so awesome to catch up. And then second, I get back and I'd taken the trailer back and it was going to be three days worth. And I, you know, I got the insurance on it all. I'm like, uh, you know, lesson learned, done. And uh, I get my bill in email and it's a third. And I'm like, what? So I called them thinking uh, there's been a mistake because it was a lot more than this. And even the gal was like, yeah, actually, that's a lot lower. But yeah, that's your bill. There you go. And that's I gave that U-Haul over on Rogers Road a big, big thank you. Well. Uh, and, and wrote a heck of a review for them. Like I told you, nice. that is managed by a guy that I've been friends with since we were in high school, Doug Carruthers. Thank you for being good to my buddy. I appreciate that, Doug, and all your fine staff and over they, at U-Haul. They have no idea how much that, that took sting out because it was like, you know what? There, hey. there are good people out there that don't lie and actually try yeah. to help you. You yeah, got absolutely. to do a road trip with your college buddy you haven't yeah. seen forever. You got to catch up. You got to see some decent scenery, and you got a pretty decent deal on your trailer. All in all, sounds like it didn't turn out too bad. Not to mention the steak and shrimp that we had at the little, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, not, I always want to call it Springtown. It was a- Apple Trees. 
not Applebee's, Apple Trees Diner. Oh boy. In uh, <laughs> in lovely Columbus, Wisconsin. And, and thank you for your great service, by the way. And uh, it was a steak and a, a buttload of shrimp, potato and corn and blah, 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 and pie. And both of us Jeez, watched out fat as ticks for man. 50 bucks. It was awesome. I wait till after the show to eat. You're killing yeah. me. <laughs> so what, did you do anything? Uh, I may have thrown a bunch of my junk in the back of the Harley truck and hauled ass for Scottsdale. Which, oh my god, yeah, yeah, you did something. Which is a really long drive. Yeah. It's even longer when your dumb ass decides, I'm going to do this all in one shot. I'm uh, not going to spend the night anywhere. Yeah. I'm not laying my head on a pillow until I'm in Arizona. And that's exactly what I did. Loaded up the truck, hauled ass for Beverly. Uh, got to Barrett-Jackson, 18 hours. You drove 18 straight? 18 straight. You are stupid. Yes. Oh my god. Got down there, went to the sale, got to catch up with Cash Singh. Oh, yay. Got nice. to see Scott Black and Aaron A.A. Ron Cook from <laughs> uh, Time Peace PR. Uh, those are the guys who were responsible for getting me the ride in the uh, Ford GT last year in Las oh, Vegas. Super so cool. hats off to both those gentlemen. Thank you very much for all the help. A.A. Ron, thank you for the free lunch and the great conversation. I appreciate that. Got to see our buddy Doug Campbell and catch up. Uh, got to meet the car wizard from YouTube. Uh, oh, yeah. Tyler's, I yeah. couldn't find Tyler oh, anybody, cool. but I found, I, I know found he was David. there though. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, his beard is identifiable from behind a mask. You can tell whose beard <laughs> that is. It was the wizard and, uh, got to see some amazing cars and all kinds of stuff. I'll tell you, it's flat rude when you leave Arizona and it's 85 degrees out and then you <laughs> Then you stop in New Mexico and get gas, and it's 65 degrees out. And then you stop in Amarillo, Texas, to get gas, and it's 31 degrees out and sleeting. That's uh, bullshit. <laughs> That's bullshit. And, yep. oh, by the way, for all the truckers who cut me off on I-40 eastbound oh, across New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma, all of you can suck it. All of you. I got cut off more than Teddy Kennedy bar hopping on New Year's Eve. <laughs> It was unreal, uh, but a really good trip. And yeah, my dumb ass, here's how dumb I am. Not only did I pull the full 18 hours going down, I did the full 18 hours coming, coming home back too, too? through sleet. Oh, uh, no, no, that's, that's against my religion. Through sleet. Uh, going across Texas, just the other side of Amarillo, I looked out the windshield at my radio antenna, and it was about as thick as my thumb for all the ice and everything that <laughs> I collected on it. Oh, but I I'm, hate oh, driving boy. on ice, man. But I'm looking at the road, yeah, and I'm too. thinking, eh, it was warm here a couple days ago. It probably won't hold nothing. I'll back it down to 83. <laughs> <laughs> back it and kept, kept making good time. And about Oklahoma, the temperature had gone back up to 36 degrees. And I looked okay, out and my, and my antenna had melted. And I was like, hey, great. Let's go back to 90. And uh, by the time I got through Oklahoma City, started heading north again, it was back down to 30 degrees. And the antenna was collecting ice again. So I had to back down to 83. Uh, but I did make it home. And I don't care if I sit in my truck again for a week. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long trip. That was that was twenty eight hundred miles in five days. That's you know, I know yeah, what that's like good on you because no man, I that's why I put a uh, we spent the night in a, a hotel in Columbus with a bunch of drunks at midnight. It was you a are crazy man, way you are long. crazy. <laughs> I just wanted to be there. I just yeah. wanted to be there. Yeah, there is that. And uh, I got to see some interesting critters along the way. Oh my 
God. Real quick, uh, Roadkill Bingo. Who's got the weirdest animal on the side of the road that they've seen? Weirdest uh, animal? Weirdest animal uh, ever or on this, like, no, in the ever. past couple of Would weeks? Would a polar ever. bear be weird? A polar bear would be really weird. I haven't seen that. Okay. You're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if it would be. Would you drive through a zoo? <laughs> a penguin, maybe? No. Uh, I don't know that I've got a weird story in that one. Uh, just your typical... Most of mine are, yeah, Midwestern, you know... Deers, raccoons, yeah, armadillos, skunks, all that stuff. And, and the last two years, I've got two really weird ones. Uh, one was right over off 175th and 169 here a couple of years ago for a week. A beaver laying on the shore of the road. I'm not kidding. Big old paddle tail and the whole bit beaver laying on the side of the road for about a week. But that doesn't quite get close to the dead elk on the side of the road driving through Utah last year coming back from Las Vegas. <laughs> watch me pull an antler out of my fender well. <laughs> hey, that must leave Bristol. Hey, Rocky, watch me step out in front of this truck. Um... Dead. Now here's something I hope you really like. <laughs> Kidding. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Have not run over a previously processed deer before. Congrats. That's a first. Yeah, my my worst worry was, you know, bones through the tires because I'm like, I've only got one spare. And that, my whole driver's side was like, I, I kind of like, figured oh, your worst worry would be chased by a pack of coyotes down the highway for the rest of the trip home. <laughs> it's our lunch! <laughs> on the hoof go oh wow 17 minutes deep completely <laughs> off the rails hey in in news this week uh the gm hummer ev prototype is just about what we're going to get from the production uh just because ford won't put a v8 in the new bronco doesn't mean nobody else will california is going to ban gasoline vehicles <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Kelly. Yeah, go ahead. Take a stab silly, at it. Silly, And Barrett Jackson moved some serious iron in Scottsdale last week, and I was there to watch it. Nice. Our special guest. Oh, and uh, for the record, Cash, I really, really wanted you to get that Shelby replica. I really did. I was rooting for you. I had no idea it would go that far that fast. The man didn't even get his hand in the air for his top bid. It shot right by. <laughs> Unbelievable. Our special guest this week. Oh, my God. I can't believe we got this guy. It's Jonathan Ward, the mastermind behind yes. amazing creations of Icon 4x4 and the derelict and reformer series of cars and derelict. trucks. Jonathan will be here to tell us about his unending pursuit of perfection, how being a multi-talented artist translates to building some of the world's coolest cars, and what he sees for the future of automotive production. Got a lot of news to cover this week, so let's get to it. We got him in 10 minutes. Do you want to... Roll this. We just come out, and we were heading into the news. <clears throat> you ready? It's all you, sunshine. <laughs> From muscle cars and trucks, the Hummer EV design is 98%. To production spec. What now, does that mean? What well, it means it's two percent from a hundred. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> gee, gee, Mr. Wizard, how did you figure that out? You asked. That's I awesome. <laughs> I, I'll say this: the pictures that they had along with this article. If you haven't had a chance to look at them yet, Mark's right. It does look like a rather kind of a yep. bloated version under the new Bronco. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording, and it's it just 
uh, the first time I saw some of the promo pics on it, I'm like, wow, look at that Bronco. That's a mess. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's not. That's the mmmer. Nah. <laughs> it is definitely, uh, the design is clearly inspired from the former uh, models of the Hummer. Uh, the really? Main yeah, footprints. You, can, you can see. You'll see it has, has the recognizable the grill, side, some the, uh, cues, the visible yeah. chunkiness, you know, all the good trademarks of the brand. Yep. Uh, the prototype, according to GM, is almost exactly what we are getting. So, like now, those wanna, pictures you just mentioned. I want to know how much of the uh, former Hummer it lifted. Does it come with its own douchebag owner? <laughs> Not all of them. The people that got them on super sales because nobody else no, wanted them. Uh, no, they're No douchebags allowed, right? Well, the H2s. The H1, I, I still like because of the video I saw on YouTube where a guy drives it up to a concrete wall and the tires hit first. And then he steps on the gas pretty good, and the thing just starts to crawl straight up. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to try that. Right, right, right. Well, they say it's supposed to be, you know, you know, Wrangler performing off-road ability with this big, huge If EV it runs thing. long enough, so, yeah. Yeah, sure, uh, yeah, who knows the miles on it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, when they were talking to the, the Hummer EV design manager, John Mack, he, did, he was the one who quoted that it's about 90... 98% of what you see is accurate uh, oh, outside of a few nuances here. Yeah. So, um, but basically, the, you know, the surface refinement, tailgates, skid plates, those are those are the only areas that they're like a little bit of different uh, things so we might probably come on the production side. probably so, won't notice the difference on the production yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting at too. But uh, while we uh, wait to see exactly what changes GM does uh, for the Hummer EV, um, you know, they won't be much. And so you can see the pictures and basically know that that's kind of what it's going to look like. Yeah, we'll have them up on the website so you can take a look at it and decide whether or not we're wrong on our... I would be yeah. real interested to take at least a ride in one of those, just to one, feel it, because sure. all I've done is make fun of them. Too. I've yeah. never been in one. And then the other uh, other side is to see how that uh, electric performs, because yeah. it's supposed to have a lot of horsepower. But that would be nice. And you know it's going to have the torque. It's not going to be like yeah. the old original ones where, you know... Oh. Cup of coffee and a donut before you get to sixty. The crazy thing is, am I am I actually a little bit more uh, interested on the ins interior? What the, what they're going to do with that? Because it, usually it's very off roady, chunky, big big giant you know levers and knobs and switches. I'm kind of just curious what they're going to do with that. Speaking of off road vehicles that have a lot of power, yes, coming uh, from Motor Authority, Hennessy's Velociraptor V8 Bronco. Boom. Uh huh. Yeah. So what, so r- real quick, Brett, what's the uh, What's the highest horsepower Bronco? Three ten horse. It's yeah. that. Uh, it's a what is it? A two point seven liter twin turbo V six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about a seven hundred and fifty eight horsepower? <laughs> Hell yeah! Two hundred twenty five thousand dollar monster. Well, you were pretty sure that uh, Hennessy wasn't going to turn out anything, you know, weak. No, why? Well, it wouldn't be a Hennessy then. What? It? It'd just be like, you know, I don't know what it'd be. Yeah, everything else. It'd be a Hershey's. Yeah. I don't know. You're going to earn that Sasquatch I'm just trying to think of something with an H in it. Yeah. <laughs> Damn right. So Ford has no plans to drop a V8 in the Bronco Challenge, but, you know, the V8, you know, to challenge the upcoming V8-powered Wrangler, but have no fear because Hennessy Performance is here to save the day. Uh, of course they are. Oh, yes. Yeah, we got to love those little guys. Um, on Wednesday, Hennessy unveiled the Velociraptor V8 Bronco, which can be ordered directly from Hennessy or via some select Ford dealerships. I don't. It's, I don't, I don't know. surprising. I don't. Get I didn't know that. they had those. Ford's not going to do a V8, but they'll allow you to order a Hennessy. From I, I'm assuming there's a few dealerships that like are Shelby dealerships as well. Sure. Okay, that sure. They're probably yeah, are yeah. Hennessy dealerships, as, you know, um, or whatever. Uh, for the Velociraptor Bronco, uh, they're replacing that 310 horsepower, 3.7. 
uh, twin turbo V6 with the Coyote 5 liter V8. So they're still keeping it in house. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Uh, with a supercharger with 758 horsepower, like I said. Uh, they're uh, upgrading like intake, exhaust, and fuel systems. All the stuff you would have to. Oh, yeah, yeah of course. The supercharger should uh, hustle it to 0 to 60 in 4.5 seconds. Not bad. Damn. Not bad. That's, that's not bad snappy. It's not that stupid Durango, but that's not bad. That's not bad either. Now, is that is that pushing, you think only rear doesn't say, or you think it's pushing all-wheel drive? No, that's, pro- that's got to be all-wheel drive. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that was just going through rear tires, that's still amazing Dude, that's, to get that kind of speed. That's Ronda's GTO fast. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, Hennessy's Bronco will have a slightly different appearance, of course, from the stock one. Uh, custom hood scoops, more aggressive front and rear fascia, custom grille, and uh, Kregers. Hot <laughs> damn! <laughs> Finally, V8 and yeah, Kregers. It says so. Oh, no, wait, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Off-road uh, Mark, Mark, I'm sorry. It doesn't say. It says custom. I thought that said Kregers. Oh. Custom yeah. aluminum wheels. I'm wow. sorry. You just canceled Christmas. Yeah. Uh-huh. Screw you. Yeah. Oops. All right. Uh, they uh, obviously gonna, they're going to have some upgrade suspension for improved uh, off-road capability, and probably just to handle the power in the loan. Uh, interior features some other trim, embroidered headrest. You know, showing the Hennessy thing. Oh, 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 and Mark, and a special <laughs> serial numbered plaque. Did you see the little sign I was making while recording this? When I was doing this, that wasn't a I'm squeezing your head thing. It's like oh, they're really? gonna there's gonna be a plaque, a dash well, plaque. That they, makes all the difference. They said yeah. they said special badging. Special, yeah, special badging? 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 We, we don't need, need no special badging. badging. The uh, that uh, that <laughs> plaque. You know, I hope that plaque just says special on it. <laughs> There's my special plaque. Look at special. No, that'd be the special. Is that badging. like the bicycle helmets that say specialized on them? <laughs> and the guys cut out the IC, so it's a special ed. Yeah. yeah oh. Uh, I just, I find those plaques, I don't know, I'm sorry, it's probably because I can't afford it. This is probably just pure envy talking. <laughs> it is. But it's just so stupid. You, you have badging you envy. A one of these days. I got a special we'll numbered a special. car. Yes. Whatever. Hey, hey, wait a minute, I got one of those. Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> they're only gonna, my, my Porsche's got a plaque on it. Does okay. it? Yeah, it does. They're only okay. going to make so 24 of these? So yeah, 24 examples are planned for 2021. Now that's just 2021. Who, who's to say how much longer they're going to do these yeah, if they catch right. on? Uh, like I said, prices, okay, they start... At yeah. two hundred twenty-five thousand, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what options that make that go past that, or is that pretty much a fairly Dude. loaded deal? What we need uh, Ford to do is to listen to that and watch the sales on that, because if there is a bunch of people out there willing to snap them up at two and a quarter, I mean, you make them at a hundred and you make them from home, you'll be sailing out. How many other cars can you think of that you'd go out and snag up for two and a quarter? None. <laughs> Uh, Not a damn one. Hold on. Do, I'd buy do a have garage. to, be able to afford the two and a quarter first? Because I can't. Yeah, I can't, condo can't down at the lake. That. Yeah, you're yeah. not wrong. I, I will say, though, they are including a limited warranty with it, so yay. <laughs> that's, that's worth at least you know, a couple hundred bucks right there. That's, that's got to be worth. That's covered some of that cost. $700. From <laughs> greenbiz.com, five things to know about California's gas car sales ban. Uh-huh. Ban. Ban. In the last two weeks, right. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a history-making executive order banning the sales of new gas-powered cars within the next 15 years. They're not the only ones looking at this. Really? Pa- pardon me for just a second. Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. I, you know, there's a part of me that's completely incredulous going, there's no friggin' way. But then I went, a- oh, yeah, California. 
California. What a jack wagon! Uh, it's a uh, good luck with that. Yeah. Although, uh, like I said, it was uh, oh gosh, it's an East Coast, uh, basically uh, California, but with more cussing. I can't remember the name Jersey. of the place. Yes, <laughs> that is actually thinking about uh, is eyeing this. <laughs> Uh, the strategy would provide a significant boost to the market for zero-emission vehicles. Uh, about 2 million new vehicles are sold in California each year. So starting in 2035, all of these would have to be electric. Boogie, because woogie, woogie. it's going to get rid of your carbon footprint by using all of that coal. Uh, electric car, too. Electric power to, uh, to do this because, you know, it's all better if it's coal. Um it's supposedly inspiring and jarring for a state that's built major parts of the economy around the internal combustion engine vehicle. Mm-hmm. While California is the first state in America to set such a goal, countries and cities in Europe are taking similar measures. United Kingdom is poised to move its fossil fuel vehicle ban from 2040 to 2030, mm. 10 years from now. Uh, yeah, uh, British Electrics. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Get on that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome hey, to the look, age of darkness. Now nothing will run. This is fantastic. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Better, no, the air is clear because we have no moving vehicles. Yeah. Hey, once again, remember the motto of Lucas Electrics. Be home before dark. <laughs> Many European cities are banning the driving of fossil fuel powers within the city center, uh, fossil fuel cars uh, within the city center. California's order will face legal challenges from the auto industry, no duh, and potentially from the federal level, depending. And a lot rests on the shoulders of the California Air Resources Board, which is responsible for creating and implementing a plan. Now, the one thing I I will give California uh, way back when geographically gorgeous. Well, when I was young, two uh, things they canceled, you know, they oh. started going, uh, no, no more lead. You got to have lead free in this. And, and you know, even my dad was one of those, what the hell is this? Okay, Jim? Well. And um, they started, you know, when the smog started leaving Los Angeles or at least lessened when you could actually see across Los Angeles on a good wind day rather than it just being pure filth in the air, yeah. you started seeing some results. Now all the pure filth is in the valley where they shoot the porn. <laughs> where is the automotive center of the world? Where is automotive culture bigger than any place else on the planet? Southern, garage. Southern California. Yeah. Really? You're going to ban yeah. this? Listen. They they haven't figured in what they're going to lose in taxes on gas per gallon, because I I oh. think it's it, in California it's close to sixty cents a gallon or more. Oh, double or triple that. It's California, uh, and I love I love California people. Uh, you know, I've got relatives out there. Uh, in oh, we've got a lot of friends who live out there. Oh yeah, but for the the legislative aspect of it, all they're going to do is increase. The uh, the taxes on gas. I I I will bet you dollars to donuts it'll go fourfold minimum. Oh yeah, because everyone they're not going to say that you can't drive gas powered cars. They're just you can't buy any new ones the, starting twenty thirty five. Well, and then they're going to make the gas so expensive that you can't. Yeah, you know you can you can keep your gas powered powered car. Nobody's saying that you just can't afford it anymore. That's okay. Uh, yeah, Las Vegas is four hours from L A. Oh, <laughs> you don't even run out of full tank of gas. So, uh, well, I mean, in, in, bing, in, in England and stuff, they do they do congestion charges compared to what you drive. But if you and then you know big big SUVs and stuff that take more gas, you charge they get charge you more tax. You have to pay yeah. every time you drive through yeah, well, through I town move, through busier town parts either, of town. So, and uh, <laughs> but if you have like a, a hybrid or, or an EV of some type, you don't pay nothing. I'm surprised they don't start with something like that first. Oh, it'll get there. instead of just straight banning it. 
All righty. Well, hey, Barrett Jackson returns to live auctions. Woo-hoo! Proves resiliency of the collector car market during the 2020 fall auction. I was there. Dude, that's cool. I was there. I did watch some of that while I was uh, not picking up my effed up car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, it was on TV, so my buddy and I were in the uh, in, in the motel room, and I just popped that on. We spent about twenty minutes just uh, watching the cars go through. And I was walking around with a face mask on, sweating to death. Yeah, I bet <laughs> it it was so stinking hot when when I got there. I couldn't believe it. The first day there, it was ninety two degrees. <sighs> Wow, which you I knew know, it was warm. I didn't think it'd be that warm. When we've been having fall, well, they were having a, a warm snap, and we've been having fall here, and yeah. all the yeah. leaves are changing and falling off, and, and everything else. And I got down there, and it was a setting for London broil. It was freaking <laughs> hot. Uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, and this comes from Barrett Jackson. This was uh, their own post. Uh, Barrett Jackson returned to in-person events during the fall auction at Westworld of Scottsdale, October 20th. Westworld. Westworld. <laughs> what are these, some out-of-control cowboy robots? <laughs> Howdy, partner. Uh, October brother, 22nd baby. through the 24th uh, of this year, 2020, with a very successful auction. During the three-day sale, 100%. Of the no reserve 442 vehicle docket sold for more than 23 and a half million. 100% of the no reserves. It was was a no reserve auction. Jiminy Christmas. No kidding. Everything went. If you took it there, you didn't leave with it. Uh, $845,000 was raised through the sale of three charity vehicles. In addition to the online and global TV audience, bidders, consigners, and invited guests were in attendance. Here's the one thing. It was an invite only. This was not open to the general public. Oh. So uh, they did. They went to great pains to make sure that everything was, uh, uh, you know, everybody wore face masks. Yeah. And you weren't allowed to touch the cars, which is different for me because I have to... You know, when I cover these things, I get in every car, take odometer shots, look under the hood and everything else. Yeah. And I couldn't do that with too many of them. Uh, There were very few that I could. And it was really, really sparsely attended. Mm -hmm. But that was because they wanted to maintain social distance. They had a great thing there. They had a a Bugatti (laughs) Veyron up on a (laughs) stand. Oh, you must be this far. I saw the picture. Surrounded by a cover. And it said, (laughs) keep a Bugatti between you. This is how you social distance. (laughs) Yeah. That was... That was different. Um, Craig Jackson said, we're so thankful for the bidders, consigners, and guests who joined us for our first in-person event since January. The feedback from the attendees was overwhelmingly positive. We are excited to carry this excitement into our 2021 January Scottsdale auction. The top vehicles all selling at no reserve for this uh, 2020 fall auction include... I got to see all of these. They this were was the very, top one. This was the top sale. A 2018 Ford GT sold for $1.2 million. Jeez. I don't think I've seen and, any of those go for under a million. And and neither did, well, uh, a couple did over the summer, but this one was not okay. one of them. One point, wasn't far 1.2 million. Okay, that's good. That's and awesome. yeah. it was the twin for the one I got to drive in Vegas last oh, year. No so way. that was pretty cool. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, uh, somebody else cut me loose in a seven-figure car. Holy crap. Uh, a 2012 black Lexus LFA sold for 440 A 2005 red with white stripe Ford GT sold for 3025 
63 Corvette Custom Coupe for 286. Uh, 2017 Dodge Viper ACR at 229. 60, and the rest of them are uh, customs. The, it's just so much cool stuff. Uh, they sold Ken Block's 2016 Ford Focus RS RX for $200,000 for charity. Uh, a 2019 Ford F-350 Lariat custom pickup truck. Now, you should have seen this thing. Crew cab, two-wheel drive, dropped down on the ground, looked like it was three miles long, the slickest black paint. Ugh. It was sexy, custom wheels and custom everything else. That thing went for three for $275,000. And another car that I reviewed, a 2020 Chevrolet Corvette. It was charcoal gray with a red interior, sold for three hundred seventy grand, benefiting Heartstrings Foundation. Barrett Jackson is now accepting consignments for the 2021 Scottsdale auction. You can find them at BarrettJackson.com. Nice. Pardon me, Barrett-Jackson.com. Our special guest this week is Jonathan Ward, the self-professed madman behind the amazing creations of Icon. Jonathan will be here to discuss bringing vintage vehicles to the modern age through EV transformation, what he sees as tough times ahead for large vehicle manufacturers, and the latest project from Icon's Thriftmaster line, and so much more. This guy is a wellspring. Oh, dude. Yeah. I am, I'm excited to have him on. Cause yeah. Can't wait. He's cool, and he yep. knows his shizzle. Yeah, just a little From bit. I understand you. All this much more is coming up next on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio, the sweetest smelling podcast on the web. Our special guest this week is Jonathan Ward, the self-professed madman behind the amazing creations of Icon, featuring reimagined builds of first-generation Broncos and early Toyota FJs and the Thriftmaster series of 47-53 to 53 Chevy 3100 five-window pickups. I like the pickups. Oh, oh yeah. God, they're sexy. Icon also build the yes. derelict and reformer yes. series of cars, which have major patina, barn find, romantic vintage vibe with hidden or disguised modern engineering to transcend and evolve the vehicle for use in the modern world. Your your words exactly, sir. Oh, dude. I was going to say that flowed pretty good, but I want to back up. <laughs> say I'm the madman. How did you guys come up with you're the best smelling podcast or the best smelling sweetest smelling smelling radio show? Uh, <laughs> disprove it and I'll take it back. Yeah, <laughs> there's no like clever backstory. No, no, no. no. If, you, no if you can no. prove me wrong, I'll take it back. <laughs> I mean, it smells pretty good from here, I guess. Exactly, nailed it. And, and we're about to smell a whole lot better. Uh, Jonathan is a true Renaissance man. He is a painter, a sculptor, a carpenter, a welder, and a perfectionistic craftsman. Jonathan. And welcome to Driven Radio. Why, thank you, sir. Happy to be here. Um, for the uninitiated, uh, tell us about your early life. Where did you grow up, and what was your family like? Well, I was born in uh, the countryside in Maryland in a small town called Elkridge. I escaped when I was seven to New York <laughs> City. Escaped. Grew up, escaped. Yeah. yeah I, like that. I mean, I loved it there, but at the same time, like, quite curious so i was getting kicked out of little league and cub scouts because i asked too many questions and i thought we we're gonna do like woodworking or actually you know slot cars or something interesting and you're having us do like jimmy carter based peanut shell 
paper <laughs> airplane. Like, what are we doing? This is bogus. When am I going to use a sheep shank? When the hell in right? my life am I going to use a sheep shank? So it was good. I loved the New York City. It was a great experience. It exposed me to a ton of different forms and interpretations of art and culture via, you know, architecture, and marathon cabs or antiques or food, you name it. It just kind of opened up my eyes and uh, showed me a bigger horizon. And then I left New York in 1985, and I've been in Southern California ever since. And when you left New York for Southern California, it was for an interesting reason. You had a job supporting your family at a real early age. Uh, can you enlighten us, please? Yeah, I, 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 I had a godmother who was the wife of Senator Monroney, who we knew through my parents' hardcore hobby in the dog show world. My dad's a lawyer, or was, he's still alive, but he's retired. Um, but their big thing was judging dog shows and uh, competing, etc. So they're into that whole crazy culture. We ended up befriending uh, Mrs. Monroney. She became my godmother, and my parents made a secret deal with her. Um, they also came from the Maryland, Virginia area, uh, multiple generations in the small towns in the Chesapeake, and they really wanted to make sure that my sister and I were exposed to more culture than they had had the opportunity to have. So they basically set it up so I'd go see her once a month or thereabouts in D.C. and go to the opera or the ballet or the Kennedy Center or to the Smithsonian, you name it. And on one of those trips um, was to see Berenchnikov in his first American performance. Wow. And, yeah, and she was super hooked up. So we went backstage to meet him afterwards. I was woefully ill-prepared. So when he turned to ask me if I danced, um, my gut reaction would have been an inappropriate answer. So I thought a quick <laughs> and clever lie would be the same thing that got me out of football and most organized sports. So ah, I'm too short. Well, apparently that touched a nerve with him. That's why people told him he would never amount to anything as a professional dancer. So next thing I know, he set me up and paid for my training with the Baltimore <laughs> Repertory Dance Company, and which I only did for like a couple summer months um, in the break from school. But one of those people, one of the other kids, their family was going to New York. My mom said, here, we'll slip you 40 bucks can he go with you? We'd love for him to see the city. Oh. And they did not realize what they were getting into because <laughs> they were going up to go on a big open audition for Peter Pan. I was bored. I figured I'll just watch everyone else and do what they're doing. So I signed myself up, auditioned, and ended up getting it. And then that just <laughs> oh my God. snowballed into a 20-plus constant career. Um, on Broadway and TV and theater, et cetera. And CBS ended up putting me under contract and moved me from New York to L.A. to do an uh, old series called Charles in Charge. And then once I got here and realized you could have a driver's license, therefore a car at 15 and a half, I said, okay, I'm good. I don't need to go back to the city. Happy to visit, but I'm going to stay here in SoCal. So yeah. is, is that when your passion for cars began, and is this all Willie Ames' fault? <laughs> that's funny um the car passion started way earlier my grandfather actually on my mom's side owned a small corner gas station slash two bay garage slash used car dealership starting during the depression um so 
they still owned the property, although he had retired and closed it. It, I guess, wasn't sellable. So it was like a time machine. And I used to grab the keys from him and go over there and like literally like 1950s snap-on pinup girl calendars still on the wall and a galaxy still on the rack and all the old tools and ephemera one would expect. So I, I was already drawn to that. And my dad's always been a bit of a car geek as well. But um, Willie is certainly partially to blame. Most notably, I recall him. He had a 930 Turbo oh, that was oh, hyper, hyper modified. It was an early one. It was like a 79. And I remember clearly he had, you remember like the, you sit on a roller coaster and there'd be those tubular sort of U or V-shaped mm -hmm. bar click, 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 click down in front of you. Okay. I might oh, yeah. be making this up, but my memory clearly remembers <laughs> no, no. the sound and the sensation of that. And then he took me on a Yahoo quick freeway, I guess it maybe to scare me, but it didn't work. I was like, hell yeah, I did. <laughs> We're like doing 130 on the 101 uh, oh my God. late at night from Universal Studios. And then um, Tony Danza also can share a part of the blame. He had a kick-ass split window that my friend Tony Nancy, a famous, or now unfortunately mostly forgotten, but famous early both dragster driver, top fuel guy, and car customizer in L.A. that I later interned with. Um, uh, Tony took me out in his black-on-black -black split window, and, and that certainly uh, reinforced my passions. As a diehard Corvette guy, I'm very jealous. That's too cool. Yeah, that's probably the newest Corvette that I have a chubby for. I love those split windows. Other than that, I have the 58 with the belt strips down the trunk line have always spoken to me. I've got a uh, a red with white Cove 60 that I've had since I was 18. Oh, cool. So, yeah, uh, I, I absolutely get it. How did you become such a multi-talented artist? There's There's so many different mediums that you work in. Uh, how did you learn to do all this stuff? Well, I think if I was my kid's age, they would have pinned a couple anacronyms on me, such as ADHD and what have you. So I've just always been incessantly curious. And my exposure to various arts early in my life, I think, made that part of my curiosity. Um, so from literally on road trips or bored out of my brain at dog shows, I'd walk around <laughs> with my sketchbook and try and uh, squeeze money out of people to pay me to do portraits of their dogs or sit and design watches or different ideas. And um, I've just always, it seems, done deep dives into different mediums throughout my life. And that could have been extension classes, night classes, University of YouTube, interning, sweeping the floor, shut up and listen from the old masters, and in more recent years, uh, fairly significant global travels to dive into specific arts with masters, and maybe even more impactfully, um, the way different cultures look at, engage, and respect different forms of what unfortunately North America seems to want to call manual labor or blue collar, like it's a bad thing. Um, you know, for example, Japan, they engage all the senses when crafting anything, the good, 
artisans do. And um, I learned a lot from that. And, and really transportation, my love for classic cars has always been there, but a big part of why it actually turned into a, a, a full-on career path was that if you think about it, it combines sculpture, mechanical engineering, electrical design, light color textile, you know, shape and form with woodworking, leathercraft, and pretty much almost all of the arts that I appreciate and or occasionally am fairly competent at in an incredibly cohesive, extroverted, usable, shareable platform that honestly like brings a smile to everyone's face, yeah. especially in the form of like a derelict because <sighs> you get away from the, the social baggage or pretenses of wealth or value. So you're not the guy rolling up in a Lamborghini that everyone's full of perhaps negative connotations often with, right? It's, oh, everyone has like a visceral tie and a memory to vintage vehicles. And when you take it down the derelict road, it's that much more approachable and engaging. And I, I've that's, that's uh, probably been my favorite because of the depth of engagement and acceptance that I see worldwide from tiny kids in strollers to grandma, grandpa in a walker, right? And, and no matter what your sexual preference, your race, where you live in the world, your politics, none of it, everything goes aside. Everyone can understand, enjoy, and appreciate that together. Nice. Can you talk about just for a little bit your uh, your fascination with textiles and leather working and uh, watching some of what you've done? I, I think that was one of the more fascinating things is how the interiors always lay out with your cars. <laughs> oh, and they're just getting crazier and crazier <laughs> as I delve deeper and deeper um, into leather crafts. So, I mean, it's always been part of the brand, such as. Um, the first automotive application of an American-made, interesting, woven, recycled textile known as Chilowich that you've seen in, in my Broncos and FJs since inception. Lately, it's getting deeper and deeper into like reviving old craft and craftsmen and working with them on projects or even just reviving the craft and doing it myself and integrating. So. It's been about probably three years now that I've been hot and heavy in leather craft. It certainly accelerated during COVID, but I trained in here in LA, in Florida, in Italy, in Japan. Uh, I think that's it, plus YouTube. Um, and really been hardcore doing that up until COVID. And then during COVID, especially dealing with my wife has a, a compromised immune system and we're in the middle of a breast cancer battle oh. or hopefully mm -hmm. knock on wood at the tail end of that battle. Amen. So we've been spending a lot of time at home. So my oldest son's off at college. So I eventually just completely deconstructed his bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll show you. I turned it into like, it's a total mess. So my dogs are currently enjoying it, but um, pretty <laughs> seriously outfitted um, leathercraft studio. Oh, You'll nice. notice decidedly no sewing machines. So I'm doing everything basically as it was done um, in the 1800s. Um, so I hand finish 
hand dye, hand stitch, hand burnish, hand cut, no machinery, um, down to like using, you know, cocobolo wood on edges and total geek out. And it's such, I really was yearning as, because, you know, as Icon has grown, you know, back in the day, for a long, long time, for, for over 20 years, I was in the shop running the planishing hammer, the English wheel, welding the parts, building the harness, doing the restoration assembly and everything. But as the company has gotten to the size we're at, honestly, probably all of my employees are better at those things than I was. Yeah. And at this point, I have a responsibility to pilot the brand and, and, and do product planning and marketing and the design work and CAD and renders and sketches. So I really missed that very simple, visceral brain, eyes, ears, nose, hands. And I was getting frustrated with the reality that, I mean, my production models we build pretty efficiently, but frankly, they're at the point of repeatability that other than picking color and textiles and entertaining certain perversions to entertain an exact utility or lifestyle or interest of a client, they're pretty cut and dry for me. Versus the derelicts and reformers where I get super nitty-gritty in design, I'm kind of in and done and have laid that out and then it can take years before it's done. So Leathercraft gave me a way to at home from a dead cowskin, a hammer and some simplistic tools, some sketches um, to create in a short timeline and be in a hundred percent full singular control of that creation. So you can make a 600 horsepower wallet is what you're saying. <laughs> sure, why not? Let's I'm, try. I'm digging on that. Yeah, and the key fob. <laughs> but Thank the you, way Tandy it's integrating Court. into the vehicles has been a super fun experience. So like that Hudson coupe that we did, oh, which yes. did wild caught uh, American alligator interior. And then I had just finished training with uh, this, this incredible leather artist, Kathleen Fiorito, um, who... Basically, Hermes stopped using a traditional pigment system that requires skill and time, two things that aren't compatible with production, kick it out, knock it out, scale it, which is unfortunately the model, right, for most luxury brands. Mm -hmm. And um, they own the company and they're letting it die on the vine. So another friend of mine got distribution rights for it and went to revive it. So I was learning that process. And in Georgia at Amtan, American Tanning, one of the biggest American uh, sources for tanned uh, alligator. And my client uh, saw my Instagram feed and like immediately WhatsApped me. He's like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I'm like, I'm thinking exactly what you're thinking. In fact, the color palette on the samples in my class I was doing had your Hudson in mind. <laughs> so he's like, hell yeah, let's do it. Um, and that was super fun. I mean, totally ridiculous, unjustifiable expense. Took me personally about 60 hours just to do the dyeing and surfacing. But the end result is just transcending. I've never seen anything so nutty. And then <laughs> we're doing like a 75 Cherokee right now, which I don't know if you remember on the original model, they had, like, it was all Hyde of the Elusa Naga. So, you know, it was Naga Hyde vinyl. And they did, like, a sort of throwback American saddle tooling effect in the dielectric stamping in the vinyl. 
Hundreds of tiny was, Nagas died to make that interior. Uh, right? <laughs> the but it was, of the it was soulless. Because A, it was vinyl. B, it was machine made. C, no one bothered to do any research to understand tooling language. Because tooling is very specific to different regions of the country and different timelines and cultures. Theirs had no direct relevance to anything. <laughs> So like my mom um, and dad's couch. My, my <laughs> client's going to use the truck in Wyoming. Sheridan Wyoming style tooling is a beautiful language and in, in traditional tooling. I had studied that. And more importantly, a dear friend of mine, Mercury Leatherworks, Trajan, is the absolute rock star of doing that. And in fact, you know, Boland Saddles, like Roy Rogers and John Wayne and like. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they're like the saddle if you were a baller back in the day. Um, he now is responsible for the restoration and maintenance of that oh, brand's that's cool. heritage. That's cool. Yeah, so it was a super cool opportunity. My client kept pushing me to do crazier and crazier things. He already has an icon, one of our Power Wagon crew cabs. And he's like, I love it. It's beautiful, but I want something extra special. What else can we do? And I'm like, I... Right. You're fighting, you know, you're playing with fire asking me to keep geeking out and go longer and longer leave. But since you asked, wouldn't it be cool if we hired the oldest existing tannery in North America that's been in business since 1867? What if we were to buy saddle maker hides from them and then work me and Trajan to design and then hand tool the interior leather? Butterflied, right? So mirrored down the center line of the interior oh. in the original Wyoming Sheridan tooled language. Wow. How about that? He's like, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. So 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 we're on it. We're doing it. And uh it's it's super fun. Again, for me, like even the architectural inspirations down to the glass applied in skyscrapers through to Chilowich, which I found it designed within reach through to marine and aerospace and rail car uh, and military application. Like if you really study and peel back the layers of the onion in all my vehicles, there's kind of an odd discontinuity of sourcing, frankly, because I don't know any better. And at 50, <laughs> I'm down with celebrating that I don't know any better and party on and relish it, right? So I integrate all these things that inspire me down to like the surface on an elevator in a fancy building in Chicago. I'm like, that's cool. So after I did my meeting there, I went and found the building manager and dug into his brain and got the supplier resource. And that stainless ribbed material is now standard in the Icon Bronco interior. Um, MIG jet map lights are standard in the Icon Bronco interior. Um, the That's visors cool. found in military jets and Lear jets and on and on and on are now the standard visors in all of my new school. So this just the way my odd brain works. I think my challenge is, right, to make all these oddly sourced elements work together cohesively um, in chorus in whatever it is I'm building. But to me, that's like one of the most exciting things about my quote-unquote job. 
Now, sourcing all these things, are you having them made like brand new for you, but based off of the uh, designs like the, let's say, the MIG lights? Or are you having them sourced by leftovers, new old stock, or, you know, a, a plain field in Belarus that has a bunch of these left over for you? Where the hell are you finding this stuff? Well, like I've done a vintage MIG jet clock in a car to client request, and that was just a good old fashioned eBay score. But in, <laughs> in general, it starts with understanding who makes it, do they still make it? If I go the normal route and call their rep or sales cubicle dweller, they're going to go, great, how many do you need? Yeah, goodbye, because my, you know, my volume is small. Right. Next step is deep dive, black book, call around, friends, networking, and actually LinkedIn is the one sort of social media network that I'm not a slut on, and I only use very <laughs> – the people that are my contacts there are deep, honest contacts. Right. And I'll mine even LinkedIn to find the CEO of that company, try and get him to respond. And if he's brave enough, dumb enough, or responsive <laughs> enough to do so, boom, I'm messaging him right away and saying, all right, here's skinny, man. Don't know if you know my brand. This is what I'm about. Here's my brand. We're highly regarded. I love your product. It rocks. I know I don't fit your protocol. I can't handle your buy-in. I'm not worth your time in regards to your P&L, but perhaps you see other values, and it's worked so good. So, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I, they completely have blown me off, like Chilowitz, the textile. I talked to their rep. I called their main office. and like, yeah, no, we don't do transportation. Go away. <laughs> but at the time, the CEO of Design Within Reach, who was their biggest retailer, was a good friend of mine and a car geek. So I called John. I'm like, dude, what's up with Chilowitz? They don't want to deal with me. He goes, yeah, they kind of like stick to the standard models. He goes, but I got a couple runners that got damaged in shipping sitting in the warehouse. I'll just ship them to you. I'm like, perfect. So ship them to me, deconstruct them, repurpose them, put them in the car. That car ended up in a New York Times Sunday feature cover in the automotive section. Boom. Monday morning. Sandy Chilowich, the founder of the company, reaches out and says, hey, that's such a cool application for our stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm so happy you reached out because your company didn't want to deal with me. Now she's like, well, let's do custom weaves. What do you want? What do you want to do? Uh, Same right. with Brembo. Like, Brembo wouldn't deal with me. Why would they? I'm, you know, I'm not Porsche. End up at a dinner party at SEMA one year with Auto Week. I'm like geeking out because Alex Shadeus, the founder of SoCal, is sitting on my right and he's like 92 and clever, you know, yeah. brilliant guy. Guy on my left's kind of quiet and I'm kind of geeking out and being rude. I finally realized that, stopped myself, turned around, introduced myself. So, what do you do? Oh, I'm the CEO of Brembo. Sweet. What do you do? <laughs> oh, I love Icon. I'm like, well, God, I'd love to work with you guys. So, they saw enough brand liaison, whatever, equity, whatever the sexy word is, and they waived all the non-reoccurring engineering development costs, and now we proudly feature Brembo Brakes on anything and everything we wow. do. Wow. That is fantastic. So nice. some of it had to be nose to the grinder, ringing phones, networking, tap dancing, doing whatever I could, and fortunately, as the brand has grown, it's gotten a lot easier. Yeah. You know, the longer you talk, first of all, the more I love what you do, because I, I just love the sound of it. But it also sounds like a joke my dad and I share about the things we get into. We don't know how to do anything a little. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's I I you gotta dive in both feet and, and get 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 just keep getting, keep learning. Have, I learn every day. So how many hours do you have in the average icon th or thrift master or derelict build? Do you keep track? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I didn't used to until I realized I was losing my butt on a lot of product. Um, okay, so a Bronco, an FJ, or a Thriftmaster, they're generally a 1,000 hours or less of internal man hour, excluding sublet, excluding electrical design and mechanical engineering work that we amortize over the series. Now you get into the derelicts and the reformers where they're pretty much one and done. So all those hours have to be accounted for on that brave client's repair order. They average over 2,000 internal hours. Oh, job. my. Now they make as zero business sense. They make arguably little financial sense to the client that's going to fund it. But they are a passion project um, that honestly, like we have constricted the output because they, they're not smart business. They're incredibly creative and skunk works, client funded. Me and my entire team learn a lot from that that can invariably trickle into other models or lead to future production models. But there's, there's, they're expensive. But if we clear 5% on one when the, everything's said and done, we're self-impressed and that's not this. Well, that kind of leads into the other, the next question. And because you can do everything in the build, including sourcing the unbelievable fabrics and leathers and materials, and you do your obsessive search for perfection and the cars and trucks you build are done to a standard, seldom seen, not just in the car world, but in any industry, how can you possibly be profitable? Well, it's funny because I think the general perception is that we are a luxury goods provider, right? And if you look at the metrics from standard MBA classes, whatever, the average metric is a 5x, 5 to 7x multiple in a luxury goods space. So that ain't happening. But you're not a luxury goods provider. You're a quality goods provider. Right, which goes against the grain, unfortunately, of contemporary culture and trends and consumer digestion capabilities or whatever. <laughs> Um, honestly, we, the only way it's viable and it's a constant, constant struggle, um, you know, especially running a proper business in California, which is so anti-business at this point, I'm questioning my intellect for being here. It, it, we, we try and operate at 30 points. Sure. Just literally standard small business metric. Um, sometimes we exceed, sometimes we achieve, sometimes we don't. So it's a, you know, it's a decent self-sustaining business. We're debt-free. We have no investors. We have no debt. Um, but it's, it's not, uh, certainly not a get rich scheme. And it, it's funny because when, you know, like when we started, you guys have been in this business for a long time. You remember when we started, we were kind of the only geeks doing this at this level. Yeah. Back when you were TLC. Uh, yeah. When we started Icon, everyone thought we were crazy and they're like, Oh, good luck with that. Like, even our neighbors who were other resto shops in our old building, they had a pool on the wall. How and they long? were 20 bucks a slot on the pool for which month we were going to go belly up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you know what? That's right. I knew about it. And, you know, it was open conversation. Heck with them. Actually, they're all out of business now. So who won? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take that. It's a challenge. And really, 
Uh, I turned 50 this year, and I think I'm starting to think, okay, maybe I've been negligent in entertaining the craftsman, the passionate goober within me more than the responsible paver road for the future of my family capitalist pig. I haven't been listening to that parrot as much as the artisanal parrot. And I'm, I'm, I guess I've constantly been, but I've been refocused more and more on trying to understand how I can do that without negating the true integrity and value, the DNA of my brand. Well, so and far, I think there are opportunities there, but it's, mm -hmm. it's difficult. So far, it looks like you've been doing a pretty good balancing act. I wouldn't, I wouldn't automatically think that two-headed parrot as being sacred and profane. They're both speaking a truth. So uh, They are. I've, I've, I've leaned into the creative fulfillment, call it ego if you may, side of it. Now I'm saying, okay, I'm never going to disrespect that parrot, but it, it, I need to be more fiscally responsible, paving the road for a sustainable, healthy brand by diversifying my product. Because like we haven't advertised in over a decade, not a single ad, not a dollar spent. The brand equity and the number of people who, if that are if they're car people that know the brand blows my mind yeah. daily, right? Yes. But my price points, because of my lunacy, is so abstract. You know, our probably our least expensive product with an icon is you know starting just under two hundred grand. Yeah. So but there's so much brand equity and people that want a piece of the brand that I'm a fool not to come up with ways to engage with them. But. At the same time, I think I, I, I don't think I know with utmost certainty doing a collaboration with an OEM that gets watered down to a trophy plaque and floor mats and a decal kit, I will not do sure. because that will negate the core. To me, I live a good life, we're healthy and happy, and we get to travel, and my job is fulfilling, my life's fairly well balanced. Um, and if that's what I end up with, so be it. What's more important to me is 20 years, 30 years, like into the future. If people see an icon or talk about an icon and they know what it represents, what it meant, that's brand value. So yeah. I need to put that in measure with, yeah, I'd like to sell a S-ton of widgets that don't negate the brand but make us some scalable money. So that's my next chapter. That's my challenge. And, and to that end, tell us about the latest Thriftmaster build. Uh, what is it and what went into it? A couple years ago... I wanted, okay, when we, when we started Icon, I realized that my engineering approach to holistically engineering and evolving a vehicle to behave entirely different than it did in its beautiful but archaic stock form, for people to really be able to understand and digest that, I felt I had to define a brand aesthetic that told them it was different. Flash forward, People get it. People understand the brand. Then I was anxious to step back and do a less invasive, less industrial machismo brand aesthetic and engage what I've always appreciated in the stock aesthetic beauty. Yet, you know, there's tons of opportunities to evolve that and elevate it by material choice or instead of a plastic switch, machine it in stainless, but around the design language of the original. So I started with the FJ, then into Bronco, 
and then now, as you mentioned, into Thriftmaster with what we define as our old school package. Therefore, all of the established icon model aesthetic became what we call our new school design package. So it's the same engineering, but with dozens and dozens of differentiating visual and tactile interface points that just widen the appeal, attract a different audience. And I think culturally, people more and more don't want to be noticed. Oh, they want to blend in. Fly under the with, radar. Yeah, under the radar. At one with the locale, the campground, the island, the ski slope, the trail, whatever it might be. And it's really interesting. In fact, old school has brought a significant amount of female clients to the brand, which is really kind of cool. Granted, a bit more complex often in the design phase. They're much more nitty gritty and granular, but I welcome that challenge. So I think it's it's been fun because we're able to engage in all these funky colors and textiles and more retro vibe, and we have widened our audience. So that Thriftmaster you referenced was basically the testbed prototype or what have you to define what the old school Thriftmaster would be. So gauges, leather pattern, seat design, wheel design, trim, badging, knobs, switches, IP instrument panel, dash, layout, and on and on and on um, are redesigned for that model to change the, the whole feeling. So what do you have in the works right now? And more importantly, what is it you'd like to try that you haven't been able to yet? Oh, boy. Those are... <laughs> those are Scarily singular questions. Um, okay, the easy one. What do we have in the works? So right now, uh, we have, in essence, in general, we produce Icon, FJ, and Broncos in batches of five and Thriftmasters in batches of three. So we have the next one to two and a half, maybe three years already sold and in queue to be built. Mm -hmm. And those teams are growing and chugging along. Thriftmaster, for no apparent trackable reason, we've seen a massive uptick in interest in. So we're yeah. growing and trying to hire it's to build that team. It's American Classic Trucks. They're hot right now for, uh, oh, yeah. from yeah. Squ square bodies working backward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in fact, we're excited right now. We're doing our, well, not doing but it's in q to be done our first suburban 47 to 53 and a rare efficiency because 95 percent of my existing proven tested and done engineering applies directly to that so yeah. it's just moderate rail and coil changes uh, etc and then in the one-off world, uh, just in a super exciting, diverse cluster of vehicles active. So we have a 73-door Suburban turned into a four-door because it always seems stupid that they only had three. And now, actually, I've learned this story. That's running a Tom Nelson 1,100-horse, 1,100-torque, <sighs> bi-turbo, Dart Block 692. <laughs> That's... Uh, Everything from the bumpers to the wheels, to every knob, every switch, the font language, 
the entire floor plan, the door panels, seat architecture, every knob, handle, switch, everything you touch is one of one designed solely for that project. Good Lord. Oral oh, independent suspension, six piston hydro boosted Brembos all the way around, 16 5 to 1 rack and pinion. It's going to be an absolute ca like carving canyon killing monster <laughs> that no one like dudes in gt3s are going to be quite surprised when they see a two-ton suburban backing up their tailpipe nice. that one's fun <laughs> that, like that. that'll be a reformer which is our concourse fully you know nutty detailed version versus the derelicts which keep the patina and hide all of the work that we did we've got a 75 cherokee two-door that I'm taking inspiration from the later Cherokee Sport Steel Fender flares. Plus, I bought an early Kaiser shovel nose version pickup. So I'm taking the dash <laughs> gauges, instrument panel layout, plus the front clip of the earlier gen combined with the later gen steel Fender flares, and then massaging and manipulating all those with coil suspension, Curry Dana axles, Brembo brakes. Uh, contemporary SRT8 Fuley Hemi uh, and on and on and on in lockers and all sorts of cool stuff. That's one with the hand-tooled leather interior and mm. a little bit of Mies van der Rohe approach to the trim design. Um, no plastic, all stainless and elevated. Then we have a 70 Mercedes uh, W109 platform, so that would have originally been the uh, 6.3 yes. sedan. Derelict silver original paint, four wheel independent Brembo's rack and pinion, dry sump, intercooled blown LS9. <laughs> Super under the radar, like down to the shifter. We laser scanned the original shifter and it had this incredible. I don't know if you guys ever owned one of those cars, but the tactile human machine interface of that original shift gate mm -hmm. is super cool. So I'm like, we can't ruin that. We need to keep that. So we kept the shifter apparatus and spring ball laser scan the body, then we're seeing, seeing that in stainless to allow for the multiple additional gears of our contemporary powertrain, see and seeing an acrylic insert that has an inlaid diode strip that's hidden from view that just refracts the light for the indicated gear with a lens, like a gel lens that travels to color tint the indicated gear that you're in. And then like redesigning the dash, but in a way that unless you own that car, you wouldn't know we screwed with it. <laughs> and then like audio systems, all digital sound processors, super high-end, Focal, JBL, blah, blah, blah. But interfaces through the original Blaupunk through dual pop potentiometers. Oh, so you, your, your physical experience is still through the stock AM, yeah. FM cassette, <laughs> but it's all Bluetooth dependent fed to your phone. I think but I'm... like even the speaker grills, we look at the original plastic speaker grills for tiny little cheesy cardboard speakers. We're using yeah. that design language and reinterpreting it for our modern speakers. And then my favorite total geek out detail, you know how in a vintage Mercedes, there's an olfactory value. There's an odor yes. that is unique to yes. early German cars. I have one. Right? Yeah. Okay. So you're down with that. Yes. So, Brett, have you been able to identify <laughs> the source? I'm guessing it's adhesives. Is it the adhesives nope. that are in it? What is that? Nope. It is the fact 
that into the mid-70s at least, maybe later, my buddy J.G. Francis at MP Motoring or the uh, Mercedes Heritage guys would probably correct me, but I believe it was until 75, they used horsehair. So oh, okay. you had your springs, you had your base dense foam, then you had horsehide, and then your pleat tuck and roll was foam and stitch as an additional layer on top. Mm-hmm. But what you're smelling is horsehair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So with okay. even with the, the fact that we went from a unibody car to a rigid ladder frame to handle the whatever 700 or so horsepower it's going to put out with big fat, sticky, sticky Michelins. Um, <laughs> and then we machined the wheels were super cool too because we had to go to 18s to clear Damn. the Brembos. Yeah, I had to clear the brakes. But we machined mm-hmm. those one piece from the laser cool. scan of the original steel wheel. And then we'll patina paint it so it'll be hard to notice <laughs> what we did. But we forensically disassembled those seats. And in the rear seats, we had to laser scan the seat and then pretty much chuck it and then build it from scratch because of the mini tubs and high arch required for the Art Morrison IRS. And then the front seats, because we wanted to perfect the ergonomics, the stock car, shoulder, hip, leg, to steering wheel and eye line were misaligned, so you're kind of skewed. Yes. So we corrected that, which, you know, chain reaction, the reality of these one-offs. Domino effect, a thousand other things. Exactly. So big fat trans tunnel. We I don't know if you've seen any of the Instagram progress photos of that car, but that dry sump LS9 is shoved way back. No, I'm way down for max max handling and weight disc. I'm gonna have to look at that when I've got some alone time. It's super groovy. <laughs> so we realized we could use the original seat if we use late model Mercedes slider tracks. And if we scanned the original folding armrest inboard on the front buckets and then 3D pen, 3D printed carbon reinforced fiber versions tailored and, and, and put on a diet, um, we were able to maintain it and improve the ergonomic and sight line and body alignment. Um, so, I mean, that's a really good example of the, the levels of uh, lunacy that uh, my well, clients enable me and my team. You don't know how to do anything a little. No yeah. doubt. God what love else you. we got? We've got a Ferrari 250 GTE going four-wheel independent, pure electric powertrain. We have a Volvo mm. P1800 early, uh, one of my personal favorite, underappreciated, sexy cars. Yes. We have a uh, Volvo cars. wagon. We have a chromatic freewheeling edition 79 Bronco uh, in Q. Uh, we have a... 35 Auburn Phaeton oh. in Q. We, I mean, we, uh, just some really, really interesting loopy stuff. And personally, I just bought a car. I'm dying to build, but I have so many commitments to clients. I don't know when I'm actually going to be able to responsibly deploy resources to do it. But you guys know what a uh, Graham Hollywood is? Yes. Oh, so cool. So I scored an original paint Graham Hollywood no. that uh, I think I'm, I will eventually sell my, the first icon derelict, my DeSoto Chrysler mashup station wagon. 
Um, cause I'm just so enamored with the Graham Hollywood as I was with the chord yeah. um, that it's based on and all the history behind it's super interesting. But it's got a better front end. Those chord front ends can be kind of, uh, blocky and a little, little on the ugly side. And this has got, I like I that the grill like is broken the, up. The, I like the coffin nose. And then who was it? I keep forgetting who is the brand. So cord was going bankrupt. Auburn cord Duesenberg was losing their booty. They then sold the cord tooling to, they called it the Skylark when they released it. What was that company that owned it in the interim? I thought oh. it was Auburn, but it's not. Let's see. Nope. Uh... Nope. It was outside of their corporate ownership. They Apparently, the, the folklore is they lied to that company and told them it was state-of-the-art United Steel one-piece stamping. The company struggled to build them, went bankrupt in the process. They, in turn, sold it to Graham. And then Graham, for the third time, redesigned the front clip. They only built a couple hundred of them before they, too, went belly up. And their front clip is super, super loved, as is the typeface, like on the Graham Hollywood. That, that font language is so sexy. Uh-huh. So Did you figure it out? Who owned them in the interim? I'm look, yeah, I'm looking up uh, through DeSoto. Hubmobile, Hubmobile, Hubmobile. Oh, my God, Hubmobile. Okay. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> I'm like the guy who doesn't know more where my wallet is or car keys or shop keys, but, like, I'll retain odd, <laughs> automotive historical Yeah, facts. welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> so the future seems to be leaning heavily towards pure EVs. Uh, what are your thoughts on converting vintage cars to pure electric? That's a great question. Um, I kind of have uh, Jekyll and Hyde responses to that. From merely a business perspective, anyone, I was going to disclaimer that within my opinion, but I think it's clear this whole podcast is in our opinion, right? <laughs> yeah, so absolutely. I think if you do not embrace and accept that trend, you're a dinosaur and you're gone. So I think it's imperative to embrace that culture and integrate it. So we've done three thus far to various, you know, first dip our toe in that pond with the Fiat Gardenera that we did and with the VW thing that we did, Pure Electric, but staying with, I mean, I don't, I guess status quo is not quite fair, but sort of like the way people are doing it. And it was fine. But then being the goober that I am, it got more into, well, Okay, that's how people are doing it. But just like when I started Icon and people were putting carbureted small blocks up to their three speeds and drum brakes, and I wanted to say, well, no, why aren't we looking at modern OBD2 aluminum fuel-injected environmental monitoring and five speeds and evolve transfer case, like evolve the entire platform? I found myself looking at EV retrofits in the same manner. So, for example, no one's doing thermal management of the batteries. That's a huge liability and, frankly, negligence. Let's say you go to Big Bear here in Southern Cal. You charge up. The next day you go home. You got an hour and a half of downhill, so you're getting regen. Tell me, where are those charge atoms going to go if your battery pack is full? Just gonna Unfortunately, often up in a ball of flame. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> Thermal management cycles for electric motors, controller networks, and batteries have completely unique 
thermodynamics peaks and valleys if you look at them on a grid. So thermal management system architecture, CAN bus based, really is a missing link that should be developed there. So when we moved on to do our lead sled, the Merck, I made two important decisions, uh, at least, again, in my weird brain. One was, okay, if we're going to keep going here and we're going to really go for it, we need to evolve it. So I want Tesla rapid charge capability as well as municipal plug compatibility. Important. We must have thermal management capability via CAN networks that are proprietary intellectual property that we hemorrhage money to develop to assure the safety for the client and the longevity and the max performance of the vehicle. Last but not least, aesthetics and engagement. So us gray-haired guys, you know, if you lift the hood and there's some like RGIB color strip LEDs and some sort of technical motor and some plumber wire, that's not going to cut it. So with the Merck, I worked hard to keep it hot rod tradition visual, and I spent a ridiculous amount of time and energy developing sort of exaggerated 8BA with like old vintage speed equipment, cast aluminum aesthetic <laughs> that actually hid BMS Reinhardt controllers, you know, battery, battery management system and controllers, and many of the Tesla battery arrays. And then even the high voltage connectors and the fluid circulation for thermal management, I, I recreated from the color codes found in the original wiring harness, cloth braided over the safety thermal wrap, right, to keep it retro and hot rod and cool. So now, like, when you lift the hood, even most of the old school hot rodders are like, what the hell? But they look at it and go, ah, it's damn electric. Hell with this thing and walk away. Like it draws them in. It's still yeah. hot rod. It's still mechanical. So let's call that the Hyde answer. Okay. The Jekyll answer is the technology is moving so quickly that before I can get the car out of the shop and in the client's life, there's already, in some cases, multiple generations of evolution of improved product. Mm -hmm. Also, I like to think that I'm a recycler. I'm upcycling. I'm taking cars, trucks, whatever, that from many perspectives are at the end of their perceived value usable life cycle. And I am reimagining them in a way that they will be a viable asset and utility for decades, right? Because if we look at the, the range, the scale, the flow, the schedule of ICE, internal combustion engine evolution in traditional automotive, you know, if I put an LS9 in it or an LT4 today, okay, it's not state-of-the-art in 10 years, but it's damn close and hyper-relevant. Sure. In the sense of electrical, it's more like I'm building iPhones. And I have a oh, great yeah. sensitivity to delivering a client something that cost them an immense amount of money, took us a lot of brain drain, that in two years might be out of date and arguably irrelevant and more critically predetermine the obsolescence, which goes against what I'm doing with my brand. Sure. So I'm still really struggling with that. Um, I think in the short term, 
that starts with a deeper conversation than most clients are ever prepared to have where I am very clear and upfront about that perspective. Just say, look, if you're down with, you know, it's going to have 150 mile range, 200 mile range, it can do this, it'll do that, that's it. If that works with your lifestyle and usage window and you're cool with that, party on, let's go. Or if you're the keeping up with the Jones tech dude, and when the iPhone 10 comes out, then the 11 and then the 12, you're updating your hardware and software. Then you need to be prepared for absolutely potentially hemorrhaging money, sending it back to me to evolve it and re-engineer it to stay up with those trends and sciences and technologies. Absolutely. So I think remote monitoring um, is also critical because obviously the service network, because we have a global client base, is a concern for electric. You know, people think it's super simple, and it certainly is reduced system complexity because you don't have the myriad of systems required for traditional automotive uh, infrastructure. But, you know, it's pretty technical. So I, I'm concerned about the field repair and user. Where do they go to maintain it? Because I don't have dealers, don't want dealers, don't have a service network. So we've been on the Merck and piloting it on the Merck and here forward hope to integrate a Wi-Fi enabled monitoring network so literally I'll get a ping when one cell out of 4,000 battery modules in the car is short-circuiting or the controller thermal range is outside of ideal or whatever, whatever, whatever it might be I get a notice and can inform the client or ideally following Tesla's model update the CAN program, rewrite the code to work around it if it's a real-life functional improvement that we have realized by the client's use in the field. Also, designing it sub-modular, as we do anyway with our internal combustion stuff. So my chassis harness, my engine management harness, my dash harness are three independent networks that tie in via aerospace multi-pin connectors. So already, if you have an icon... Uh, Bronco or whatever, and in 10, 20 years, the Coyote engine's no longer relevant and you want to evolve, unscrew that multi-pin, yank it, pull the powertrain, you're free to evolve. So we're trying to do that to the next level with our EV future. I am dying to, and are already, my engineers are, and I are pretty deep in just sort of recipe theory of how we do electrify the Thriftmaster, the FJ, and the Bronco in a submodular sense. So, you know, if your battery module takes a dive or you have a motor problem or controller problem, I want to engineer that so you can unbolt that bugger, drop it, <laughs> pallet ship it to me, I pallet ship you another one, and that's part of your cost of ownership. And that may even eventually even best be realized, and I don't know, but I'm exploring that I only lease my EV vehicles because the last thing I want, our resale values are crazy good, like way, 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 way beyond both modern cars and the traditional custom car culture, and that's incredibly important to us. The EVs, I think, will tank in resale. Just like a Gen 1 Prius, you can barely give it away. Right? <laughs> a a, a five-year-old Tesla, there's been so many updates. Uh -huh. We're like, no, heck with that. So you're back to that disposable culture, which I loathe, and hurts the brand equity. 
So maybe it's only a lease thing. So when after their three-year usage, two-year, whatever it is window, I still own it and control its perceived value in the aftermarket. I bring it back. I take advantage of my own engineered protocol of submodular. I dump those modules, sell them off to someone who's happy enough to have that, lick my wounds, update it to the newest, and put it back out in the world. What do you think of some hmm. of those um, electric yeah. motors that are out that are basically crate uh, motors that have that general look and feel? Well, well, have kind of a general look of a, of a regular motor, but are meant to I fit know. I into classics. I wonder where they got that idea. What yeah. Yeah, I've always wondered. You know. Well, is that what you're working on? Uh, and maybe making a line that you can sell to uh, cheap bastards in the Midwest <laughs> who don't want to drop 21K on an electric, but uh, might be willing to do 8 to 10? Well, here's the reality check for the de- for the emerging, poking, knocking on the door, maybe EV retro car interested community. The reality of the energy density, meaning poundage and dollar per kilowatt hour today is still extreme yeah so if somebody wants a viable range not to mention performance and safety and all those other cost factors Mm -hmm. it ain't cheap so i applaud companies like uh, i think it's gte is the probably the company you were referencing and their neighbors of ours and several others, it's a hugely growing market for coming up with a mail-orderable, do-it-yourself retrofit concept. It's not a match for me because to meet a target perceived tolerable price point, it involves so many sacrifices in, from my perspective in performance, range, longevity, safety, that it's not a fit for icon got it so i think there's definitely a place for that in the market and there there's so many innovators um in that space i spoke at the ev conference in austin uh last year and um you know friends in the tesla hack community and uh and on and on and on and uh there there's a lot of potential there but i think for my focus it, it's never going to make sense that I would sell kit form anything or mail orderable retrofit versions. Understood. Someone, someone smarter than me is going to make a <laughs> hell of a lot more money doing that for sure. Drop those in a 65 Mustang without having to rebuild everything. Yeah. Totally. I'm down. But like, again, like from my perspective, for example, even running an electric motor through a traditional transmission yeah huge sacrifice yeah you you lose too much the the ratios are wrong Mm. you're scavenging so much energy you're introducing a lot of resistance and a lot of noise people don't realize you know let's say in your vw bug you never heard any rattle because of the rattle clang bang chicky chicky of the flat motor (laughs) well you get rid of that motor and then You'd be you amazed the... how loud those non-synchro or even synchro trannies are and everything else down the line. Got it. Even a ring and pinion. The amount of energy loss doing a 90-degree change in power yeah. delivery, epically large. So to me, and we're working with a good friend of ours at Stealth EV who's uh, developed some intellectual property that basically 
Uh, I don't know how public he is with this yet, but basically gets away from a transmission, provides a solution that gives you gear reduction into a viable range wherein you do not need a transmission or any shifting whatsoever that is compatible with viable ring and pinions. Because like on that electric Merc, we went transmissionless, we went dual AMR motors, we were just under about 500 foot-pounds of torque. Dude. Fun as hell. Oh, yeah. yeah However, and a Dana 60 nodular third member, bulletproof. It can take it. Now let's talk about drive shafts. <laughs> now you're talking about with me electronically speed limiting that vehicle at 105 miles an hour. And it was good to go way beyond that. That drive shaft is spinning at approximately 12,000 RPM. So you want to try and make 13 tent new joints or constant velocities <laughs> or carbon Kevlar or aluminum or steel drive shafts to balance at that RPM. There's not a drive shaft company in the country who has a lathe yeah, that's going to handle yeah. that RPM even to determine the viability. Yeah. So we went through hell and back. I mean, I, I probably blew out of my own pocket, not charging the client because I look at this as paving the road for repeatable technology. I probably wasted 50 grand in drive shafts. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something you hear very often. <laughs> and it's not perfect. There's, there's so much more that we want to cover with you. And there's, there's so much more to talk about that. We're going to have to have you back. Uh, and, the fact that you are as nerdy about this stuff as you are is what makes you awesome. Uh, nerdy. Just oh, this... you barely got me started. Oh, I, was... I know. There's, <laughs> there's so much more you I guys. Cover. That's why I, I love you guys but there's and a, your audience. But there's, a, there's one question that I ask of every guest that I'm not going to let you get away without having, <laughs> having heard. Uh, and it's always the best question from everyone. It gets the best stories. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? <laughs> oh boy well let's say I gained an early appreciation for the fact that amphibious cars are a bad idea because you end up with a crappy boat and a crappy car so I learned about engineering focus on that I also learned that even if you attempt to do high mount remote breathers and a snorkel and such, should you be dumb, brave, I don't know, pick your favorite word, enough to try and take your FJ-40 through a river of unknown depth, <laughs> it's not likely going to pan out well, including all camping provisions, floor mats, oh, pools, shit. et cetera, getting lifted and carried away in the current. <laughs> Plus waterlogging the engine and having to get embarrassingly dragged out by a Land Rover, which is so not appropriate because in my safari experiences globally, it's the Land Cruiser saving the Rovers, let me just say. Um, you know, in the beauty of the Land Cruiser, pull those spark plugs out, barf all that water out the holes, clean them up, kick it over, party on. Yep. Oh, wow. Truck kept going. So I'd say that's one of my dumber moments. Probably my most showy dummy moment, which unfortunately was captured on video, <laughs> oh. was uh, trail testing 
when we first partnered with Fox Racing and evolved the Icon FJs to coilover all the way around, we thought it would be nifty to take their military development team out into the desert and refine our charge and spring rates and rebound and get it super dialed in, bring an incredible uh, uh, John Johnson, a photographer with us, to, to cover it. Everything went great. We're done. Sun is setting. Johnson, being the guy that he is, <laughs> like, you know what? You see that little ATV, little uh, oval over there? I know it's kind of tight, but it'd be super cool in the sunset if you were to go in four, hit the lockers, engage all four, and I'll stand on the island in the middle, and you can pirouette around me. Let's get some killer all-four-wheel roosters. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Sounds like fun. So I go do it. Now, meanwhile, this car is slotted for a six-month feature exhibit at the Peterson Museum two oh. days later. Oh. So we do it a couple times. It goes great. Johnston's like, you know, like, if we get, if you just come in a little bit hotter, we get a little bit more rooster. It'll be really, really cool. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I came in hot. I hit the berm. Next thing you know, to dunk, to dunk, to dunk, to dunk. Several rolls. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah that was no. an expensive lesson learned. I didn't even have the large enough testes to engage my insurance company, and I just ate it and oh, dealt with it. Oh, my God. But you know what? We fixed it, and uh, a, a true testament to uh, icons. We literally, I blew up the front drive shaft, mind you, so disconnect the front drive shaft. Windshield frame crushed. I was safe. My cage worked perfectly. Drove it four miles back to my trailer, put it behind my Tundra, tail between my legs, partied home. And the uh, body wasn't even dented, which is crazy. <laughs> I totaled the windshield frame, had major road rash on my powder-coated body. But our bodies are 532nd unannealed 5052 H32 marine rated aluminum. Hmm. So we just had to take it apart, replace the windshield frame, repowder coat the roll bar, replace the front drive shaft, powder coat the body, and party on. It was good to go. <laughs> and try and get rid of the video. Stupid, so. <laughs> I got a, I have more of those, but those are my top two dumb wow. guy moments. Wow. Nice. That's Incredible. What testament to the quality of what you yes. build. So for sure. Very, very cool. And before we get away, uh, I want to make sure that we talk about the charity that you've got. Uh, it's a children's charity you're doing a lot of fantastic work for. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, it's super exciting, especially right now as this airs. So my children's charity is called Go Campaign. So it's gocampaign.org. Basically, what we do is incredibly simple. We identify local heroes in communities in the U.S. and around the world that are already engaged and understand what is most impactful to create opportunity and improve the lives of the next generation. We come in, we support what they've already proven works with grants, and we connect them to our global network of like-minded local heroes, as well as our staff, and we help them scale and find more efficiencies in their program to make a bigger impact in the world. So because of COVID, every year I host a crazy fun 
party at the shop or various locations and I bring together Singer and Speedcore and a bunch of geeks like me and it's a super fun event. We had to cancel it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that meant we lost about a half million dollars revenue for the charity at a time with COVID and all of the issues in modern culture and race issues uh, are a greater need than ever. So we teamed up with our friends at Omaze, and I built an Icon FJ44 loaded to the gills that we are currently putting up to support Go Campaign. So it closes mid-November. You can go to omaze.com slash icon. Every donation goes to support my charity, which to date has raised over $110,000 for my charity. Nice. And you have the opportunity to win an Icon FJ44 built to the hilt with $20,000 cash hidden in the gun-rated locking stainless steel center console <laughs> with tax delivery and transport included. Oh. So it's a super, super cool uh, promotion, and we're, we're, we're really excited about it, and it's already proven to make a considerable impact in all of our communities. Oh, nice. And we can see these uh, where again? O-M-A-Z-E dot com slash Icon, I-C-O-N. Or if you hit my Instagram feed, I have been shamefully, relentlessly (laughs) pimping it. There's also an in-depth video explaining the truck, the charity, and Omaze on the Icon YouTube channel where there's like over 300 of my completed project video deep dives featured. Absolutely no shame in that whatsoever. It's done for a great cause. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm not making a dime on it. This is all directly to the charity. Ah, that's cool. Super cool. Very, very cool. Thank you, sir. And Jonathan, thanks again for being with us. Again, we've got so much to cover. We can't wait to have you back. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Certainly. Thanks for the honor, guys. We've been speaking with Jonathan Ward, the driving force behind Icon. You can find all of his social media links for Jonathan and Icon at readthedriven.com. We'll be sure to post that so everybody can get a look at it. What a cool guy. What a cool guy. Jonathan, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do. God, we love what we do. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. Uh, You can find us online at drivenradioshow.com, readthedriven.com, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show, and listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Corey Pratt. That's me. And Catfish Groves. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. (laughs) 